Grace, mercy, and peace are yours through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week, Pastor told us a story about a young boy who went to a gem mine in North Carolina where he paid a, a couple of dollars for a bucket of dirt in which he found a sapphire. And the part of the story that's most memorable to me is that at first he didn't even know what he had. That sapphire looked just like any other dirt-covered rock. But in the end, what had looked to be something that was completely worthless turned out to be something of incredible value. Now, over the last nine weeks, we've been going through the Old Testament of the Bible under the pretense, we want to see Jesus. And we saw that it didn't take very long, not very long at all, after God finished creating his world, before the crown of that creation, the human beings, took the plunge into sin. And then God's sentence for that sin was that humankind would be destined to die. And that after their death, they would be cast into hell where they would suffer an eternity of separation from God and, and all of His blessings and all of His love. But all was not lost. Because just as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God gave them the promise that He was going to send them a Savior. A Savior that would defeat the devil. And a Savior that would take away that punishment of death. Today we know that that Savior is Jesus. And so we're looking through the Old Testament with the theme, we want to see Jesus. We want to see that Savior. A Savior who, who rescues us from sin. But when we see how it actually played out, the gruesome details that we got just a, just a taste of in that video, we might start to think that maybe that's not actually what I want to see. And some of you may have even turned your eyes away from the screen a little bit because you didn't want to watch. You didn't want to watch because there was so much blood and, and it was kind of gory. And it just looked downright awful. And while the events that took place on Good Friday may be awful, they're also awesome. Because they brought about that, that salvation that people had been longing for since, since the very beginning of the world, way back with Adam and Eve, when they first sinned. Let's, let's listen to the words of Isaiah the prophet. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
This prophecy of Isaiah comes, as Pastor told us earlier, about 700 years before Jesus was even born. And throughout the Old Testament, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, God had been slowly revealing this plan of this Savior that He was going to send. Giving more and more as time went on. He'd narrowed down the bloodline through Abraham and the patriarchs and through David and his descendants. And He's given us all these pictures and shadows of what it was that Jesus was going to do. As He came, we have the the Passover lamb, the scapegoat, the ritual worship and, and sacrifices of the temple. And all of those things are pointed to Jesus. And now we have this prophecy from Isaiah. 700 years before Jesus is going to be born. And this is a prophecy that has opened the eyes of people from that point until now. Because in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, God told them He was going to send that Savior. But in that Savior's defeat over sin and death and the devil, God said He he wasn't going to get by untouched. He will crush your head, God told Satan, but you, you will crush his heel. And now in this, this prophecy before us today, God shows us just exactly what it was that he meant by that. As we look back 2,000 years after Jesus lived, and, and almost 3,000 years after Isaiah gave this prophecy, we can see without a doubt that Jesus is the He that Isaiah is talking about. What might strike you as kind of of funny, kind of odd, though, is that all of these verbs are in the past tense. He grew up. He had no beauty. And we might think that with a prophecy, maybe, maybe they would be in the future tense. It's something that hasn't happened yet. And all right, you actually probably weren't thinking that, but maybe... Maybe you are now because I've brought it up. And the reason for that is that when God spoke through His prophets, when He talked about something that was going to happen, He used the past tense. He did it because God is in such complete control that He is able to say, this is what happened. About something that it was still going to be hundreds of years before it would take place. God is in such complete control over everything that He's able to talk about the future as though it were the past. Up until this point, there weren't a whole lot of details out there about this coming Savior, this Messiah. What was known was that He was going to come from the royal line of David. But now with these details that we get from Isaiah it doesn't seem like he's talking about a very kingly man. On the contrary, he's talking to us about a man of sorrows. This is the exact opposite of of what the Jews were expecting. By the time Jesus finally came to earth, the Jews had been waiting for a long time. It had been at least 400 years since there had been any word of the Savior, Thousands of years since that first promise back in the Garden of Eden. And in all that time, the Jews started taking things into their own hands. They were worried that they were going to break this law that God had given them. And so they set up their own 
rituals and, and rules around the law so that if they kept their rules, then there was no way they were going to be able to get through and, and break God's law. And, and they spent so much time and, and dedicated so much energy to keeping these rules that they kind of forgot about that promise of the Savior and, and what it was He was going to do. So when Jesus finally came, they missed Him. They missed Him because... They weren't looking for Him anymore. They weren't looking for a Savior from their sins. They thought, they thought they had that covered. All they were looking for now was a Savior from, from the Romans, the people that were oppressing them. They wanted a powerful King to be their Messiah. They wanted a mighty tree, a cedar, or, or a redwood, like the mighty King David. They wanted something that looked on the outside like a shiny gemstone. But what they got looked like maybe just a worthless rock. Just a little shoot springing up out of the stump of, of David's fallen tree. But they should have known that was exactly what Isaiah had prophesied. He said a root springing up out of dry ground. But because the Jews had taken everything into their own hands, they, they lost track of what it was that that Messiah was really coming to do. And they missed him. Well, Jesus came and, and Jesus has gone and, friends, we've missed him too. We've missed him because we were born about 2,000 years too late. But Jesus is coming back. Before he went up into heaven, he told his disciples, in my Father's house, are many rooms. And I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, so that you may also be where I am. And so for now, we wait. But it's been a long time, hasn't it? In fact, it's been almost 2,000 years. And in the course of those years, as time has gone on, people have started taking things into their own hands again. And just like the Jews in Jesus' time, the Christians of, of that growing church started making their own rules. Rules that they thought, if they kept, they could get themselves their own righteousness. They could earn their salvation through keeping these rules. And that's the world that Martin Luther was born into. That's why the Reformation happened that we've celebrated this past week. Because the people that were calling themselves Christian had completely lost focus on the Christ that they were named after. The church was teaching that it was actually your own works that were going to get you into heaven. And meanwhile, Jesus was being despised and rejected. Just like Isaiah had foretold all those years before. Well, now, here we are, 2013, almost 500 years after, after Luther and his Reformation, and we're still waiting for Jesus to come back. Have you started taking things into your own hands? Has history started to repeat itself yet again? And are, are we, too, living in a generation that has despised and rejected Jesus? 
I think if we look at the world around us, we can see that the answer is definitely yes. In fact, if you just look around you in this room, you're going to see that the answer is yes. And I don't have to look any farther than my reflection in a mirror to see that the answer is yes. We know that Jesus is coming back. And that when he, when he comes back, he's going to judge the whole world, separating everyone that has ever lived into two groups. The righteous, he's going to take with him back to heaven. And the wicked, he's going to send to that eternal punishment in hell. Now we all want to be on this side. We want to be counted with the righteous. But as we sit here waiting for Jesus to come back, we keep on doing things that, that land us on this side with the wicked. And so what do we do? We start taking things into our own hands. We know we're doing bad things, things that would get us over here, and so you know, maybe you, you hit your brother or sister or you yelled at a spouse or a friend. We try to make up for it. We tell them we're sorry. We give them a hug. We do nice things for them and we try and balance it out so that in the end, the good is about the same as the evil or, or maybe we want to get it so there's even more good than wicked and, and so then at the end, we can say, yeah, I'm over here still. Or... Or maybe we try and look at other people and compare ourselves to them. Yeah, all right, I, I yelled at my wife or, or my husband, but, but that's not wicked. I saw this lady on the news the other day, and, and she murdered her whole family. That's wicked. Now, what I did is it's not so bad. I, I'm still over here. I'm okay. Or maybe, yeah, I, I took a piece of my sister's Halloween candy. But that was just a Tootsie Roll. That's, that's not so bad. Now this kid at school, he, he stole somebody else's bike. That's a big thing. That's a real sin. But what I did isn't, isn't so bad. I, I think I'm still over here on, on the righteous side. We know we've made mistakes, but, but we kind of tell ourselves, I know I'm still over here because I'm nowhere near as bad as those people over there. Or maybe we sin something like we run out of patience and we blow up at someone. Or we're just simply too tired to get up on a Sunday morning and, and come into church. Or we're caught in just a small moment of weakness and, and we do something that under normal circumstances we would have never done. And then we rationalize with ourselves that, yeah, we can still be considered righteous because we're trying our hardest to do what's good. And we want to follow God and what He says. And we're doing our best. And it's just kind of understood that we'll slip up a few times along the way. But really, we can still be over here on the righteous side. There's all kinds of different ways that we try to get ourselves into heaven. Because when it all comes down to the last day, we want to be able to say, I'm going to heaven, and I helped. Because that, that's so appealing to us to be able to say, we did our part. 
But the Bible tells us that anyone who keeps all of God's law and breaks just a tiny little part of it is guilty of breaking the whole thing. No matter how hard we try, we're going to sin. And no matter what that sin is, it condemns us to hell. But before we give up completely, Isaiah has more to say. Surely, he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It doesn't make a lick of sense. I mean, this is Jesus we're talking about. This is God himself. And look at these words. He's, he's crushed, wounded, struck down, pierced through with, with a killing blow. But why? Oh, dearest Jesus, what law have you broken that such sharp sentence should on you be spoken? Those words of the hymn writer might, might come to our minds when we see such a terrible description of things that our Savior had to go through. But the answer is clear. It wasn't for any crime of his own that Jesus was beaten and crucified and killed. It was for our sins. We may try to get into heaven on our own by, by balancing out the good and bad or, or just trying to stay one, one step ahead of the bad guys or, or trying to climb our way into heaven doing the best we can, doing it all by ourselves. But it isn't going to work. It's never going to be enough because at the end of the day, these things that Isaiah talks about, our infirmities, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, our sins, stand in the way in between us and that door to heaven. Our sin separates us from God. But then Jesus came and he washed it all away. Jesus paid for all of our sins. He took up our infirmity, our sickness. And this isn't a, an earthly illness like the flu or cancer. This is that hereditary disease of sin that goes all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And he took that disease of sin and he put it on himself. And he carried our sorrows as he carried the cross which should have been ours. And then the punishment for our iniquities, our guilt, and our sin was given to Him. And so now, instead of our punishment, we have peace. 
it doesn't make a lick of sense that Jesus, an innocent man, would die for us. That God would make himself a substitute for sinful people like you and me. But that's the awesome mystery of God's grace. That, that it's all summed up right here in these verses Isaiah gives us. We are sinners. We've wandered off on our own like stupid sheep wandering away from the path to safety. But God didn't leave us to our wanderings. He didn't give up on us like we might expect. When we screwed up and took things into our own hands, God took things into His hands when He stretched them out on the cross. He took all of our guilt and our sins and He put it on Jesus. And He gave us the righteousness and peace that was Jesus' righteousness and peace. That's not a peace like anything the world can give us. That's the peace of God that, that through Jesus' blood which He poured out on the cross, we have been brought into God's family. We are now children of the Heavenly Father with all of the entitlements that come to sons and daughters of God. Forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. And Jesus didn't bring us that peace because He had to do it. He didn't suffer and die in our place because He was forced to. He did it because He loves us. And because He wanted to save us. Just like Isaiah had foretold so many years before. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. When the soldiers came that Monday, Thursday evening to take Jesus away, he knew that he hadn't done anything wrong. But he went anyway. He didn't have to. He could have stopped them right there. Jesus, God the Son, was in complete control over the situation. And the Bible reminds us that it says when they came, Jesus asked, who is it you're looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And he answered, I am he. And then immediately all of those soldiers were thrown back and, and fell to the ground. And they got up and he asked them the same question again. And they answered again because they had no idea what had just hit them. Jesus was in complete control. But he went along anyway. He humbled himself and let these men that he had created arrest him and drag him to this mockery of a trial. And then he let them beat him and curse at him, make fun of him, spit on him. And then nail his hands and his feet to a cross then raise him up and hang him. Jesus gave himself up 
willingly. And he did it out of love. He did it for you and for me. And Isaiah shows us that this isn't just something that happened that Jesus went along with. This was his will, his plan all along. We read those final verses of of this chapter in Isaiah. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. When we hear Isaiah's prophecy about this man of sorrows, and when we see the awful things that Jesus went through out of love for us, it seems terrible and unfair. It seems like something that that can't have happened on purpose. But it did. It was a part of God's will. It was His plan, His predetermined course of action. Because God could see what we can't. He could see the whole picture. And He knew that Jesus' death wasn't an end. It was the beginning. The beginning of His new glorious reign in heaven and the beginning of our new life. Because Jesus died so that you and I could live. And He didn't stay dead. He rose again triumphant over death and sin and hell. And He ascended to the right hand of His Father in heaven. And now He looks out and as Isaiah said, He sees His offspring. You and me and everyone else who trusts in Him and in that peace that He won for us. Jesus is no longer the man of sorrows. Because His his work of satisfying the law's claim on you and me is over. And those sufferings that he went through, went through are done. Think of the satisfaction Jesus had as, as he hung on the cross and, and he knew those sufferings were coming to an end. And he looked out at the people in front of him, people that he loved. Not just the disciples and and his mother, and those others of his followers, but everyone that was there, Jesus loved. And everyone that was there, he had come to die for. He had come to save them. And as he looked out at them and knew that his work was finished, and he was able to say those words, it is finished. That beaten up, dying man, hanging on a cross, may not always seem like the Jesus we want to see. But he's the Jesus we need. Because our sin is a serious thing, and the punishment for that sin is just as serious. But it was Jesus who paid that punishment for us. And so, at a first glance, when we look at, at the contents in this book, 
it might not seem like that shining gemstone. It might at times look pretty awful and terrible. But we know that there is an immeasurable amount of value to the promise that we have in this book. The promise that isn't awful, a promise instead that's awesome. That Jesus has paid for our sins and we no longer have to fear the punishment of God's wrath. We don't have to make up for, for the wrong that we've done. We don't have to worry about what side we're going to land on when Jesus comes back. Because when he poured out his blood on that cross, he did it so that he could buy you back. He took things into his own hand, reaching out and taking you and bringing you to himself. So that you are now his. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of what he did for us. And he is in complete control. So that now, even though we're still here waiting for Jesus to come back, we're able to say with absolute certainty, in the past tense, my sins have been forgiven. My salvation has been won for me. And I have been given eternal life in heaven. Amen. And now may the peace which Jesus won for you, which is beyond any of our understanding, guide your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus until that life everlasting. Amen.